Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. So happy to be here recording again with you. Yeah, good to talk to you again. So today, Andrew and I are going to talk about why we cook ancestrally. And I think there's three sections to that. We're going to talk about what ancestral cooking means to us, why we do it, and then what it actually looks like in our kitchen, you know, the nuts and bolts. There's a lot of to get through. Um, hopefully, we'll get to everything. Just before we start, in my curious mode, um, we like to start by talking about food, which is normal. And I'd like to know, um, Andrea, what you had for dinner last night. Well, this is actually really funny because I think it's the same thing I had on a different time we recorded. <laughs> so people maybe think I eat the same thing every week, but I don't. I haven't had this since the last time we talked, just a okay. while ago. <laughs> But uh, knowing today would be busy, yesterday I made in advance a big pot of red beans and mm. I cooked the H-bone from the pig that we butchered in the fall. And What's the another... H-bone? I don't know why it's called H-bone, but it's just a fairly small piece that we cut out of the pig. <laughs> I don't know really where the name comes from. And then we also had the secreto. I actually don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, which is another cut of meat. And it's like a, a really tender piece of the pork that's underneath the belly fat that, that you take out for the bacon. Okay. And it's really delicious. So we cooked that we soaked the beans, then we cooked the pork and the beans together. And then mm. I pulled the pork back out and shredded it and then put it back in. And then I pulled out the H bone. I shredded all the meat off and put the meat back in. And it is unbelievably delicious. Mm. <laughs> did you did you put any spices in or not? I did. I just threw in handfuls of everything, all kinds of everything, <laughs> all the spices. <laughs> what's and really interesting to hear you talk about? <laughs> what's really interesting to hear you talking about the meat is that the cut, the names of the cuts are different. So your cuts are called something else in the states to what they are in the UK, and the cuts are called different things in Italy, and they're cut in different places. So trying for me to learn the different cuts here in Italy to the UK so I can ask a butcher or know oh, what I'm getting, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of the butchery videos I watched actually referred to that saying, you know, culturally there's different cuts taken off of, uh, out of the same animal. You know, this mm. I used to always think, okay, well, what part of the animal equals what? But it has, there's lots of questions. You know, if you're cutting up a pig for charcuterie, you'll cut way, you know, long different cuts uh, that they'll look different. Whereas if you're cutting it for, you know, if I was just one person by myself buying a pig, I'd probably get lots of, you know, ribs cut and separated and lots of pork chops. And then butchering this pig for our family, and we always have lots of people over here all the time on the farm, then I primarily cut out large roasts, picnic hams, things like that, but big pieces that could serve a lot of people. And I just looked yeah. up the H bone. It just means the rump bone. So I guess it's just. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, now it makes sense to me. So do you want to know, do you want to know what I had for breakfast? I always... different to yours. <laughs> oh yes. Cause you know, your, your time zone, uh, you're ahead of me. So I hope the future yeah. is good. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's nice. It's a bit misty, but it's nice. Okay. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I skipped dinner last night, so I was really hungry this morning. And um, I got out the last of our frozen raw goat's milk. The farm that we get our raw goat's milk from stopped producing because the goats don't um, produce milk over the winter. But I had some stash in the freezer. So I got yeah. that out and um, made it into kefir a few days ago. 
And then mm. I made myself a smoothie this morning, um, which is something I like to do if I fast the night before because it kind of keeps me not having carb for a longer period of time. And I'm trying to train my body right. to be better at being a fat metabolizer. So I had some kefir and then I put in loads of ground linseed, um, an egg yolk. What seed? Um, linseed. That's flax. Oh, I think, linseed. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we call it flax. Um, and the cacao husks that were left from making a cacao tea yesterday. So it had a kind of chocolatey oh. flavor. Some Stop cardamom it. and some cinnamon. <laughs> and blended it all up. And it was thick Ooh, and so creamy good. and kefiry and absolutely delicious. And the cardamom gave it a bit of a kick, which was lovely. Well, I it's kind of funny because I actually had a kefir smoothie for breakfast this morning too. <laughs> oh. um, but now I want to make yours tomorrow. So <laughs> I'd recommend really it good. for sure. <laughs> so let's get into um, what we want to talk about today because I just have a feeling that it's going to take us longer than we thought. What? Um, <laughs> and... I think this, because this is one of our first episodes, we wanted to try and explain why ancestral cooking is important to us and what it actually yeah. looks like in our kitchen. Yeah. Give us the basis for what everything else is going to be talking about. Exactly. Why we even care. So the, the first thing I think that's important to lay out is what ancestral cooking means to, to us. And... Right. If I start by explaining kind of my take on it and then we'll come to see if you've got something different to say. So for me, cooking ancestrally means going back to the way foodways were before industrialization, when food was in the home, when food was with the family, when food was with people's hands, with community and all the knowledge that came with that that has been lost since industrialization. So the knowledge of the cycles of um, our life, the knowledge of health, the knowledge of sourcing, the knowledge of techniques, the knowledge of raw materials, the respect that all of that engendered. That, in, in brief, is what cooking ancestrally means to me. Um, what's your take on it, Andrea? Well, that's absolutely beautiful. And of course, I agree with, of course, I'm over here nodding my head. <laughs> mm. I... It's interesting because I looked for a definition. You know, what what is ancestral cooking? And there isn't really a definition right now other than every blog <laughs> has its own take on it. Mm. But ancestral itself means of relating to or inherited from an ancestor. So what's kind of marvelous for us and the podcast helps us do that, is you and I each have our own ancestors, maybe different, maybe you and I might have some shared ancestors yeah. since my family came from where you came from. But we also are so lucky we get to share and it is shared with us a lot of the things inherited from other people's ancestors so you were telling me just before we hopped on how you were making a turkish drink well i don't mm. think you're turkish i don't know if you have no, any not at all. turkish ancestry but we are so fortunate kind of in this day and age i guess that we can benefit from all the other ancestors that other people are willing to share their traditions with for us which there has always been some of that throughout history, you know, where you see crossover of seeds going to different countries or traditions kind of moving around. But gosh, with books being so widely available in Internet, Instagram, all that kind mm. of stuff, we can learn these techniques from a lot of different people um, in a lot of yeah, different places. Yeah, I feel like there's, <laughs> there's so much wisdom out there mm -hmm. and now with the way that information passes across we have the ability to mine the beauty yeah. of that wisdom and bring it into our lives no matter yeah. where we are in the world which is amazing i feel like industrialization as you were saying ancestral cooking to use kind of pre-industrialization techniques and that industrialization seems to me where cooking ancestrally almost became taboo so sauerkraut fermented things are gross organs are gross mm. um 
you know, fermented things stink. <laughs> mm. Soaking beans, beans are for peasants, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's um kind of cool to get to dive back back towards that and bring those things back up and and let right. them be seen for what they actually are. Let them be in the light. Yeah. Yeah. So I also and wanted people... to touch on. Go on. Mm. I was just going to say, uh, let people try to reclaim some of um, their ancestry, you know, wherever, yeah. wherever that is. And then um, also getting to share, like I was saying, with others. Yeah. Yeah. I think that brings us on to why we're doing it, because, right. you know, it's all well and good to go and find these things. But there's a big, big <laughs> reason behind why both of us um, are going looking for these things and bringing them into our lives. And right. for me cooking ancestrally is vital because the food system that we're living in and with at the moment I feel isn't sustainable and Mm -mm. the ancestral way of cooking respects respects the seasons respects the animals respects our planet respects the body respects our community and therefore is a step towards making our food systems more sustainable and I feel like the wisdom of our ancestors in these techniques Um, comes from when food was made for health for Mm -hmm. sustaining for keeping people alive and for powering them not for profit and when industrialization happened food has turned into something that's being processed for profit Um, and I would like it to move back to a place where it's both sustainable and it's there and made for health not to make people rich what a shock (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, it, it, I feel like you cannot separate the concept of food from the concept of land, but industrialization, the primary goal is literally to do just that. How much can be made in the lab? How much can be separated? And, and slavery is a huge part of the industrial food system to this day. Mm. And in the modern industrialized food system, we literally only get to see one aspect of our food. Mm. So it's like you're looking at all you get to see is maybe the reflection on, you know, some dim glass. Whereas when you get closer to the source, the land where your food comes from, you can actually turn around and see the real thing, all the colors and the shapes and the, the different issues surrounding it. And, mm. um, that's the if you're gonna eat ancestrally you better have a pretty big why because it can take it can take more money doesn't always have to but it's sure gonna take a commitment to, and time and yeah. just a willingness to be industrious in your resources so yeah your why is gonna have to yeah. be pretty high and I agree with us, you I think it's, it's a big commitment and um mm-hmm. yeah but but the further you go into it you know just I started with little steps just like most people do and the further I went into it the more I realized how important what I was doing was and how much it meant yeah. to me and that gives me the motivation to carry on well there's people and, and you and I know this both <laughs> who would have a hard time even living day to day without the benefit of the healthy food and and who would have yeah you know, severe health problems if they moved back into a processed food system. Yeah, so, I mean, we would, my family would, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So not being, not not suffering from certain ills certainly is a huge motivator for us. Yeah, yeah, true. Okay, so let's, let's get down to some actual practicalities and talk about what cooking it. ancestry looks like in our kitchen. And we've got quite a lot of different things to cover. Um, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Try to put them in some sort of order. Um, I think I would like to start by talking about the source. So our buying of food mm-hmm. or our growing, a raising of food and how that's done ethically and why that's a big important thing to us and what we do. Perhaps you could start by talking about it from your perspective because you're actually on a farm and you've got animals there. Sorry, somebody came down here. What did you just say? As I said... Um, <laughs> Talking about buying and growing food ethically yes. because you're you're yes. raising animals there. So you've yep. got a different point of view to me. So start by telling us from your end what that means. Okay. 
so I, I, I love the order you put everything in, by the way. I think you did a really good job sorting. Thank you. <laughs> There's a lot of messages flying back and forth for a minute there. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we've only been growing animals for a couple months. So we're new to it from the perspective of being the owner. We've participated in it via other farmers for years but it is Mm -hmm. definitely a different endeavor when you are doing it yourself one of my friends looked at me the other day and said boy you're you're in this you're in this up to your elbows aren't you (laughs) (laughs) i said yeah it does feel like it because we had a our dogs are still being trained and one of them chased a bird so we had to go through some training for that and he's just like boy (laughs) you got to be pretty committed and growing food outside of the real commercialized chemicalized paradigm is tends to be more hands-on i wouldn't necessarily say that it's harder i think that can be a myth i would definitely say there's a higher yield i know there's lots of weird information flying around out there about you know genetically modified crops are necessary to feed the planet but it's really interesting that these kinds of you know chemically grown produce can have a higher initial yield but they don't tend to have as high of a yield over the span of time so when we're talking like longevity of plants you know the natural ones the heirloom plants and the organically grown ones yeah it takes a lot more work you know in terms of bugs (laughs) but our it's more expensive in terms of raising animals and if you're buying ethically raised meat you'll probably see that reflected in the prices you pay i know for us right now we (laughs) this is a bad thing to say but we can't even, we couldn't even, we're not selling our turkeys. We're just raising them for ourselves, but we couldn't even sell them for what they're worth <laughs> realistically wow. because we're paying or paying them. Well, it feels like it, but we're feeding them such a high quality, no corn, no soy diet. Mm-hmm. Of course they free range too, but that's just not quite enough for them right now. So yeah, it's, it's different. I definitely could have seen way cheaper bags of feed (laughs) Mm -hmm. and there's also breeds of animals that bulk up faster you know there's animals that are basically bred to get really huge in a really short amount of time so that you can feed them for as short as possible and turn around and butcher them as quickly as you can so you're not feeding them for Mm -hmm. nine months like our turkeys take a minimum of nine months so and why are you kind of... choosing to feed your turkeys that way? And why are you choosing that breed? For us, it's the, well, the breed kind of fell in our lap in a way. It's a heritage bird and a friend of a friend who's very responsible farmer. You do have to be careful who you buy your animals from, but she was selling them. And so we, we bought them from her. And so the the breed specifically was sort of chosen for us in that sense. And then the quality of food that we're feeding them is because we're looking for a return in the quality of meat. Okay. From a taste perspective or from a health perspective? Uh, Both. Both. Both, yeah. They go together. Mm. Yeah, beef is is one that probably is most people's initially. Actually, I don't know anywhere that you can buy birds that were not fed corn or soy but so beef is probably most people's exposure to finding grass-fed versus corn-fed and Mm. the meat does not taste the same yeah it's a pretty big difference Mm. so it's interesting to hear your perspective because i live in a one-bedroom flat in a town in italy and so i have no space for animals and we have tried to go on a similar journey as to what's on our plate, but we've had to do it from a different angle completely. Right. So 
you know, there's the option, the normal option here is to go and buy meat either from a butcher's on the high street or from a supermarket. Um, and when we moved into this flat a year ago, I spent a lot of my energy trying to locate local farms that were growing, raising animals ethically and were feeding them differently to the mainstream. And it took quite a while, but we were able to find two local farms run by people who've lived in this area for ages, just in the hills around our house, who really, really care about what they're doing and raise their animals on mostly pasture and who raise them ethically, who think about what they're doing, who think about the consequences of what they're doing and who one farm is certified organic, the other one isn't certified, but we visited both the farms ourselves and we've seen how the animals live, how they're treated, what they eat, we've talked to the farmers. And so we feel that eating meat from those sources is something that we feel good about. We feel good about supporting the farmers who who have dedicated their lives to this when they could have chosen an easier path. And like you hinted at, I mean, we spend a large percentage of our disposable income on food. And, you know, we're not a a stereotypical family that that comes to Italy from um, uh, an English-speaking country and buys a great big castle and has money flying around. We're we're both creative. We're both castles. (laughs) (laughs) I know quite a few people with castles. Um, um, we're both creatives wow. and we both prioritise <laughs> our, our creative life and so we don't have a lot of spare money you know we don't run a car we don't particularly go on holidays if we could we don't have TV we don't have Netflix subscriptions we spend the majority of our disposable income on food because it's really important to us and I think it's a this is one of the most difficult things when it comes to choosing ethically the time involved in going and trying to find things and the money involved Um, but it's easy to start small you know with farmers markets and from that perspective you don't have to dive in and just give your you know life savings over to a farmer every month Um, but in the same the same breath I feel like to be in integrity for me is vital for us to put our money where, where our mouths are and support local farmers and give that health and that life back to us I love that mm. so let, let's yeah. move on and talk about what, what we both eat or what's involved in our kitchen and what we bring in from farmers so I've, I've talked about meat and um, we eat meat here, we eat veg which we're sourcing from local suppliers as well we eat grains as part of our diet. We eat dairy to some extent and eggs. And we also eat a lot of saturated fat on top of that. Is that the same for you, Andrea? Well, I was looking for where you had your category of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Chocolate's a, chocolate's a little category on the side. And that that's a whole the sourcing of chocolate is a it's a whole nother uh, like little, a whole nother little episode. Yes, we um, need to talk about that because I miss chocolate, (laughs) but I'm also really concerned about sourcing it. (laughs) Yeah, sourcing's a huge, huge thing. I I look forward to that episode. (laughs) In the middle of it at the moment. But yeah, so a little bit of chocolate. There's a, there's a, there's a, I don't know, 0.5% chocolate space in my tummy. (laughs) The rest of it is filled with all the stuff I said. Uh, And also also organ meat as well. Um, that's yeah. part of meat, organ meat. Organ meat is awesome. I'm excited, as you said, you're getting a heart this week. Mm. And that's uh, the heart. If anybody wants to start eating organ meat, start with the heart because it's a muscle. So it's very similar to your regular meat. And there's just lots of great ways you can prepare heart. The things that you eat is pretty similar to us. We have fruit too. I don't know if you guys eat much fruit or not. I don't, um, but the boys do. So yeah, we have fruit. Okay, so we do. We don't have loads of it. Apples are pretty ubiquitous out here in fall. So, you know, we eat lots of that in the fall. And the spending money on food, I, uh, 
go back and forth on this. A part of me is resistant to what I see as, uh, I don't know if these are the right words. I'm not, I'm not going to try to like hurt anyone here, but the elitism of, or gentrifying foods that like the things you and I are talking about used to be the, the cheapest, you know, not, not everybody had meat. Meat's always kind of been a privilege, but Mm. I I was thinking we should do an episode one day on one of my topics, a class that I've taught before the five cheapest foods you'll ever make, which are also the five most expensive foods you'll ever buy. (laughs) And those uh, for just pennies, pennies you can make kombucha or water kefir which are very expensive to buy you can make Mm. sourdough bread i I remember uh one of our leanest times um you know i I couldn't even afford to buy yeast and all i had was Mm. sourdough and you know we bought the best organic flour and we're still eating wheat we don't eat wheat as much anymore but we're still eating wheat at this time and I remember making a a huge loaf of sourdough bread and I calculated the cost was, I don't know, 34 cents or something like that. And I thought, well, if I bought this at the store, it would probably be 10 or $12. Yeah. Um, Sauerkraut and kimchi. (laughs) Sauerkraut is literally cabbage, the cheapest vegetable in the store if you're going to a store. And salt, (laughs) the cheapest (laughs) seasoning in the store if you're going to a store. And kimchi, which, you know, you can add more things. You can put in whatever you want, really, for kimchi. That's one of the cheapest things you'll ever make. And yet, a pint can easily run, I don't know, $10. What is that? 18 pounds for you. <laughs> Wait, no, it's backwards. Like, seven pounds for you, eight pounds. Yeah. Um, And bone broth. Again, we have not always been able to afford much meat. Mm. We have more meat and organ meats in our diet now than we typically have in the past but we would make lots of bone broth to fill that protein gap yeah and that is again one of the cheapest things you'll make but buying good bone broth obscenely expensive and yogurt or kefir really good yogurt and kefir pretty you know can be pretty expensive but once you start them you could just keep them rotating over and over and over for, for years so those become a pretty cheap thing to make in the house. And then, you know, of course, anytime you think, boy, we're not going to finish this milk in time, just ferment it. <laughs> Drag mm. it out. <laughs> I've never so, really thought of it like that. But you're, you're so right that these things, I mean, I've never bought them. I've always made them. Right. And maybe the reason right. why I've never bought them is because I've seen the price tag in the shops. Mm-hmm. But um, I but naturally I I love to create of, anyway, you know. Of course. Mm. Well, I, I don't know. The reason I use the word gentrification, which... Um, it's kind of a strong word to use in this context, but I see it as these have always been foods that have been prepared in the home by largely women, not in every culture, but largely women in the in a, in a home or you know kind of village context. And then we, I don't know. Again, I suppose you get back to the industrialization where instead of having these things made at home they were removed from the home and taken to factories Mm. and then of course you have nothing else to do at home so might as well just go get a job and now that they're priced so high nobody can afford to make them we can't make them at home either because we've got no time (laughs) no nobody Mm. can afford to buy them but now we can't make them at home because we have no time because we're working somewhere else trying to make enough money just to buy processed food yeah and it's kind of a vicious cycle. And I don't work a job outside of the home, so I don't know how to speak to it. But I know that a lot, all these things I just said, the primary reason why they're expensive is because they take a lot of time. But mm. the magical thing about that time is very little of it is hands-on. Most of it's do a step, leave it for a day, do a step, leave it for a day and so if you're willing to just pick one of the five and learn the steps for it and kind of learn how you could do you could make 
you could cook the tea for kombucha in the morning before work and then after work you could it'd be cooled enough that you could combine it with your starter tea and then it just needs to sit there until it's ready for you to pour off and and enjoy you know so if you are able to kind of schedule in I mean I even put things for food on my calendar so (laughs) I knew it (laughs) if you're (laughs) able to I mean you call it a diary right but yeah. if you're able to schedule those things in, um, I don't know. The uh, Again, there are things that always belonged to what, what do you want to call the peasant class? You know, those of us at the bottom of the food chain. And now that their health benefits are being recognized, they're basically removed from our hands and taken to really expensive, nice grocery stores with upside down you know, wooden crates and chalk signs and things like that and Mm. just out of our league now. But really, they're the things that that should belong to everybody. Yeah, amen to that. I agree with you. There's there's one other thing that I wanted to just go back on on what you said, which is the organ meat and say Mm. that, you know, I said that we eat meat, grains, veg, etc. But I would say that probably 50% of the um, flesh that we eat is organ meat. Um, which means that our bill for meat is completely different to someone who would be buying, you know, steaks and right. mints right. and that kind of thing. Because we pay virtually nothing for for this heart. We're gonna we pay hardly anything for the bones that we buy and make bone broth with, and it makes it a more affordable option for sure. When we got our pig, our pig, which came from our friend's farm, beautiful, amazing farm. Um, she hired a mobile abattoir to come out and butcher her three or four hogs. I forget how many. And because I called the abattoir in advance, (laughs) I got all the organs from all the other pigs. Wow. For free. Because nobody else wanted them. So they just threw them in a cooler. I mean, and by threw, threw, I mean, they literally launched them into the, oh, oh. Okay, thank you. So would but, they have um, thrown them away otherwise? Would they have gone in the bin? I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, um, just such a Possibly just and... with the guts. I know. And if I hadn't asked, mm. they, they they even called me back and they asked me, even when I was standing there three times, standing there with my kids watching them, and they asked me, three, are you sure you want these? And I said, yes, and I want the head. The heads of the other pigs I did not get because they do – um, take all that meat and mix it in with the sausage but mm. I wanted the head of my own pig you know by itself and they just they kept asking me are you sure <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah it was all free so yeah amazing and organs and bones. what you were talking about um a bit after we were talking about organ meat was the idea of you know doing a little bits because these things aren't labor intensive they're yeah. a little bit of work and but several times a day or once a day and the next thing I had down for us to to chat about was preparing all meals at home because that's something that both of us do we prepare three meals a day at home but I wanted to to start talking about that by saying that you know we might have three meals that are coming onto the table prepared at home but I'm not necessarily spending an hour in the kitchen before each of those meals preparing it but what I am doing is every morning when I get up, I'm going and I'm checking all the things that I've got fermenting. So we might have a porridge fermenting, we might have um, the suens drink, we've got water kefir, we've got all these other ferments. And I'm going and I'm spending five to ten minutes checking them, stirring them, doing whatever I need to do. And it right. that's how my kitchen time works. I kind of batch the things and somehow all those things batch together produce our three meals a day now sometimes I do spend you know time before dinner for an hour making something but a lot of the time we're making things throughout the week and then those become our meals is is that the same in your kitchen yes actually it's kind of funny see what a good job you did putting all these topics in order we can't help going (laughs) we're just flowing (laughs) from one to the next but Sally Fallon Morell wrote about, I don't remember what the dish was called, some name, you know, kind of for oats, but she said that this oatmeal was, <laughs> it sounds kind of gross, but it'd be made and then poured into the top drawer 
yeah. of like a, yeah. like a dresser and it would just sit there and basically ferment and you kind of cut yeah. out your pieces. And I think that was kind of the how to still eat while you're working in a factory 32 hours a day type thing. And that's also where we get the Irish soda bread, you know, soda bread fast because you're working. Um, that was supposedly where that came from. But um, I did think about this the other night because we went out. We have one day a week where we have to run all the errands and appointments and things like that. And when we came home, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was we ate, but I had started the food, you know, the day before, basically. So there, there's, oh, there's just not really fast food in ancestral cooking. However, with enough of these kind of little steps like you're talking about, these little preparations, you have food that becomes very fast. Yeah, I, I would argue even faster than most processed food I've seen that you can yeah. just kind of whip out at a moment's notice. Um, but again, it does take that preparation stage in advance. And yeah, you can pay the fancy grocery store to do those preparation stages and get your beans already soaked and cooked, but they're going to cost more versus getting even the most premium bag from your local farmer and soaking and preparing it yourself. The thing is you have to soak it and prepare it yourself. And yeah. that that's the hard part again, because time is the part of the equation that has largely been taken away from us. So, so it's finding ways I to claim it. I want to give an example from my mm, kitchen, a simple example of what you've just described. Yeah. So generally, um, my son Gable goes to school two days a week here, and it's a Monday and a Tuesday. So on Sunday night, I'm kind of, on Sunday, I'm preparing all the food that I'm going to pack for his right. breakfast and his lunch and my husband's breakfast and lunch because he goes all day with him on the train and stays there and works. Um, right. And so what I do is on a Saturday night, I grind up some grains into flour. At the moment, it's sorghum and millet. And then I leave those in water with a starter to ferment. So they become like a, you know, a fermented porridge. Then Sunday morning, we cook that up. Um, it takes a while to cook because there's a lot of it, maybe 45 minutes, into a kind of a fermented porridge, which we have for breakfast on Sunday morning. And then I put the rest of it into a loaf tin. And I push it down and I leave it to cool. And it solidifies into what I call a polenta loaf. And then that goes Yum. in the fridge. And it can just be sliced and put in lunch boxes. It can be um, sliced off in the evening when they come home and either just put straight on the plate, which is really lovely because the sour flavour is stronger when it's cold, or... I often just put the cast iron pan on and put some lard in and fry them up so it fry the slices up so it's crispy. And you know, one of those loaves does basically it runs out on Wednesday. You know, we have other food as well. But that's an example of, you know, I just gave attention to it once really. Right. And then it's in the fridge and it's been pre digested because it's fermented and it it's there for us to use. So there aren't, like you said, there aren't fast in quote options, but there isn't much faster than me getting out that from no. the fridge, cutting off a few slices and frying an you, egg. There's you not, know? no, there's no processed meal, you know, that <laughs> I suppose microwave dinner, but I don't know if that counts as food. <laughs> <laughs> and it, that, that. If, if my mind is just went in 63 directions. I'm just going to try to grab one line and pull it in. When you're talking about the packing the food to take out, that mm. is that is definitely the most time-consuming food project that we have is that uh, there, it's really hard to find food that you can eat when you're out and about. There's not a yeah. lot of options. And so having food, and I can't, you can't tell me, I'm leaving here in 15 minutes and I just open the cupboard and pull out some boxes of food because I don't have that. So we having things ready that seem like fast food, like a hard-boiled egg, that's like a fast food if you already have a big jar of them in the fridge. It's not a fast food necessarily if you're trying to rush out the door right now and you have to stop and boil it. 
but yeah, even that doesn't take tons of time. But you know, if you have a jar of them already in the fridge and you have a container of black beans already cooked in the fridge and you have a big wad of spinach or something or some soaked fermented grains, you can throw together pretty stinking decent salad in under five minutes. <laughs> but it was all things that took you time to prepare. You know, you had to soak the beans and you had to cook the beans and you had to soak the grains and um, ferment the carrots and all that. But, and not, to, I, I don't want to, I don't want to intimidate anybody listening thinking, well, I guess I don't have the time for that. You know, I can't be doing all of that because we're, we're coming at this from the perspective of already being a few years in. And yeah. I think Allison, you would agree with me. Neither of us started from day one, like, well, everything I eat <laughs> goes through this rubric now of perfection. You know, it's just one little thing at a time kind of chipping away and then starting. To, and, yeah. and and you don't realize it until you just casually say, or, or I look at my plate and I think, wow, you know, if I... If I had to do all of this, to, I thought this many times, if I had to do all of this today, you know, make and ferment the salsa, make the sauce, make the whatever, it would be such an overwhelming monumental amount of work. Yet I'm sitting here looking at my plate thinking, boy, that was a fast, easy dinner to just throw together because it was just jars of things I kind of yanked out of the fridge and stuff that I did months ago. Some of it, uh, honestly, some of my ferments I did years ago. So. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so it can, it could just took me seconds to put together now, but, but the, the preparation process was, was in the past. Yeah, I agree. It's the same here. And yeah, I didn't start doing it all. I remember I started with raw milk kefir. We found some raw milk and we yeah. got some kefir grains and, and we started what making raw milk kefir. What a great place to kefir. start. And it and it's it been like complex. a snowball rolling, yeah. picking up more and more, <laughs> and then picking up my curiosity and all my particular oh, idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it just started with milk kefir. Yep, and that's Simple. that's a complex ferment from micro mm. microbiological perspective, but is one of the most stupid simple things you can make. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't even. I, I'm the worst. I don't even use kefir grains. Uh, the the one of the gals that. I used to get my raw milk from years ago. She's She'd been making her kefir for 15 years. And so I asked her, oh, can I have some of your grains? And she goes, my what? <laughs> she goes, I don't even use grains. She just uh, pours some of her starter kefir in her jar and adds her raw milk every morning. And then the next day uh. she drinks that pint. And so she just keeps it rotating. It never builds the SCOBY, but she just keeps it, she just keeps it going forever and forever. So mm. I've been doing that and... Um, Oh no, not a problem. <laughs> yeah, let's talk a bit more about soaking and and fermenting because it's so fundamental to ancestral cooking. Um, from from my perspective, we I don't eat so many beans. My husband eats more beans. All our beans are soaked with uh, a particular a medium like a apple cider vinegar or lemon juice before right. they're cooked. Our grains are all soaked in some way. Most of them are fermented so we used to just soak grains but now I'm I'm so into fermenting that that we basically Why ferment not? all our grains <laughs> so I'm making um, fermented porridges which again I make into things like loaves afterwards as well all of our porridges we eat whether it's oats whether it's millet and sorghum whatever it is whether it's spelt are fermented um, I make sourdough so that's obviously a, a soaked and fermented grain um, the other grains, the other way I use grains are in drinks. So I make the Turkish drink that you mentioned earlier, which is called boza, which is millet. I'm experimenting a bit with making that with sorghum as well now. And I make suns, which is a Scottish drink made of the husk and kind of crumbs of whole oats. Um, outside of carbohydrate, we make water kefir, we make um, milk kefir, we make sauerkraut and then we make kind of various other vegetable ferments i always have a garlic on the go i think fermented garlic is the most medicinal amazing powerhouse you could ever have and i'd recommend 
that everyone has it in their medicine cabinet. Yeah, but we also probably. have, you know, <laughs> Jerusalem artichokes are in season here, so I fermented some of those. Oof, I make yum. fermented carrots sometimes. Um, and basically all of our grain processing, a lot of our um, vegetable processing, and all of our drinks apart from kind of teas and, and that kind of things are fermented and our day is peppered by those fermented foods um, and it's so fundamental those techniques from all over the world and the slow accumulation of my knowledge and practice with them has become I think you know the, uh, the mainstay apart from the meat sourcing and the organ meat of our of our ancestral kitchen you feel the right. same yeah and and I feel like I should add too on what you said a, a big reason why we have all these different cultural ways of preparing foods kind of incorporated you know your ancestors my ancestors other people's ancestors ancestors of people I've never met is because our diet even when you're eating locally it is more diverse than it was 600 years ago so uh, me having certain spices or grains that maybe didn't grow here native you know mm knowing how to prepare them so we can you want to have chocolate well chocolate wasn't everywhere you know i don't live in a jungle mm. i doubt if there's any chocolate out here but how, uh, now that i've been introduced to chocolate i can't close that door so i need to learn how to prepare it properly and so that would mean borrowing some from someone else's ancestors yeah. so that i can learn the sort of proper nutritious way to do it and uh, Soaking and fermenting makes everything better. And I imagine pretty much everybody listening to this already knows that fermentation is a not an ethanol fermentation. <laughs> so we're not making alcohol. <laughs> I mean, yeah. have, but <laughs> we're not making alcohol out of most of what we're eating. In fact, I don't even think the fermentation we're talking about is actually a biological ferment. But that's the term we use for the process. And it's basically, you referred to this, but it's a predigestion of things. Yeah, our beans, I like to soak them with a little bit of whey. Um, oh, yeah. Or lemon juice, like you said, is good too. But I, I like the whey, but I also tend to have just like, what am I going to do with all this whey sitting around? So um, I don't ferment everything, but that doesn't mean I don't want to. I I think you're ahead of me in terms of how completely you have the fermentation incorporated in. I still feel like sometimes, like we we bought these tortillas. They're these really nice. It's a small business, organic, kind of local tortillas, but they're not fermented. So mm. um, the the corn ones are soaked in lime in that traditional process, but the yeah. flour ones aren't. So so then I feel like there's sometimes these compromises that come in between, but every, every day getting closer to kind of my mental ideal. And whenever I'm preparing a food in what I consider an ancestral method of preparation, I always find myself asking, why did they, why? Why did they do this? So mm. fermenting, as we already alluded to once, preserves your things <laughs> preserves your foods for a lot longer so refrigerators and freezers are new on the scene canning is new on the scene <laughs> fermenting is the oldest and the best i think preparation um but it's also less common and more expensive in grocery stores because it can also tend to be a little more volatile and i i do mostly wild ferments which means i ferment things with kind of the ferments that whatever kind of draws from the air yeah but i also do lots of inoculated ferments so water kefir or you know milk kefir would be an inoculation with a specific culture um you know which whatever my kefir originally started with you know just putting that little bit in there it's my chosen specific inoculation versus i have done some milk like clabbered milk but that's not yeah. really a ferment necessarily i guess it kind of is it's it's an ancestral process right yeah 
but but it's not inoculated you kind of just get what yeah. you get but yeah. then then like all the krauts and the kimchi and the veggie ferments and things like that are are wild so i just mix in the salt and the cabbage and then sort of come what may <laughs> yeah come what may is what the ferment i get the thing that we haven't um i don't think we've mentioned around the ferments is the that huge health benefits you know the probiotics that are yeah. made in the fermentation Absolutely. process and then that goes into our you know the the commensurate bacteria in our intestines and they go to work with those right. doing good things and then the research I've been doing recently on probiotics is then after that's happened there are things called post probiotics and then in sourdough bread even though you cook you could cook the sourdough bread so you think well what's happened to the probiotics but that creates things called paraprobiotics which have another role in the immune system so you know even cooked probiotics are doing things to our health and changing the way that our cells are and so this whole process yes it does preserve the food but it also creates food that creates health at the same time absolutely and i think that's maybe part of why i've been able to get away with still having some non (laughs) non non-intestinally prepared things mixed in is because there's there's a lot of good stuff going on and and every every little thing that you start adding in i feel like you start to notice the benefits of it and so then you it's very encouraging because then you know when you kind of swap something else out and bring Mm. in the good thing then you're going to notice more benefits so it, it motivates me to keep on keep on keeping on and and when you're eating local as much as possible you almost kind of have to eat ancestrally because <laughs> um you're just not gonna find a lot of the ingredients that are in modern recipes <laughs> like on a yeah. farm you just not yeah so yeah, you agree. kind of end up find like finding the recipe that has the ingredients that you have and then just by default it's going to end up being some old school hammer and ferment type thing (laughs) yeah yeah I'm aware of time we're getting close to to time I just wanted to um for you to share a bit about how you buying bulk and you're kind of shopping as a project and then how you can and freeze because I know you do more of that than me um and and I can talk a little bit about seasonal shopping and eating here but but talk a bit about buying in bulk and how you process those purchases yeah so buying in bulk I sometimes do and I don't always but buying in bulk is kind of a cheat on the buying seasonal eating seasonal so if I'm buying my blueberries in the summer and freezing a lot of them and then I'm eating blueberries in the winter well I'm no longer eating seasonally because I'm eating blueberries in the middle of winter when you don't normally have blueberries they were purchased or picked seasonally so they have that nice delicious nutritious quality to them but it's not really seasonal eating so um there's i suppose you 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 could just eat local but um sometimes it's a nice stop gap in between to buy bulk and then sort of spread it out over the span of a year maybe your area is not super vital at certain times of year or maybe you just don't have an entire staff (laughs) like I'm thinking of Renee Redzepi's team in uh, Denmark is it Denmark is that where they are Copenhagen I I think I don't know but his amazing restaurant where they really savagely only eat in season so they're serving you like you know sea foam on a piece of moss and stuff like that (laughs) all so seasonal I just I just adore that but um, he has a whole staff right and people like out on ice flows looking for you know bacteria that they can serve up or something so wow uh, (laughs) they're really admirable but um so sometimes it's just easier to buy things and prepare them in advance if you have the room and by have the room i should say that we have we look right now we live in the largest house we've ever lived in we've lived in you know apartments duplexes attics basements (laughs) and we've had stacks of canned food and crocs of ferments in our bedroom under the bed yeah yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, you have to like walk around them to get through the house. And so, um, there, you know, the decoration in the side table is just containers of food and stuff. But mm-hmm. so it's not like we have huge pantries where we put everything, but we do have the luxury of not having all our food in our actual living space right now, which is a first for us. It's an absolute first. So, mm-hmm. um, don't think that it's necessary. We, we will buy bulk from different farmers. You know, if I know a farmer who's, who's growing something I really like, then I, and I don't, I rarely will ever ask for a bulk discount. Um, because I, I know what a lot of work it is. I've been on the other end of the mm. cash register and I know what a lot of work it is. And I know that sometimes it can feel like your work is being discounted. But a lot of farmers will offer me this. They say, hey, you know, if you just want to get all these boxes right now, or maybe these will only go for another day if you'll take them off my hands, you know. So I'm, I'm open to that, of course. Um, we'll sometimes do that with fruit. I think pretty much all we did this year fruit-wise was blueberries and a little bit of peaches and... A little bit of apples from our neighbors but mm-hmm. um so we'll can some of it we'll freeze some of it oh we'll ferment mm-hmm. lots of things but not everything's you know if you ferment apples then you have a different product altogether so <laughs> um well we did a little bit of that but <laughs> it's not uh the same as fermenting cabbages so and then yeah we got lots of carrots there's a farmer selling his second carrots so you know carrots that look really funky or have like a worm in one half of it or something like that and he's just this old school organic farmer on the side of the road (laughs) where we used to live and so we fermented I still have one jar left of that in the fridge but we fermented a lot of his carrots and um and then we do freeze pretty considerable portion right now all of our meat is frozen versus fermented um and i did not Mm -hmm. can any meat this year although i have before sometimes i'll can meat if i just need to get room in the freezer for something that can't be canned and we have some frozen fruit and we have some canned fruit i've always been amazed you know when i've seen the pictures of your canning on instagram just (laughs) the the sheer volume of it because from from a European perspective, or at least from our perspective, we don't really buy in bulk at all. Um, I think right. that's partly because, um, number one, we don't have a car, so it's hard to, to carry it all. Right. Um, <laughs> but number two, you know, fr- fruit's available all year round here. There's always something that's, that's oh, available. Wow. Veg are yeah. available all year round. So the largest thing we really buy is meat. We get our meat every two weeks. So we use our freezer for that. Right. But we don't have a big freezer. So okay. really... The only thing that's that's in our freezer generally, apart from some loaves of bread I've made and, and stock, is is meat. Um, and I feel like we've got a completely different perspective on, on bulk buying in that, in that we don't do it. Um, our shopping yeah. is still a project because we don't have a car. So Rob has to carry everything. We have to go to the farmers and get the meat. <laughs> you have to carry it home. Rob runs up the hill to get the, the milk. Um, and so we still have to plan very much, you know, wh- when are we going to have these grains? When, when's our meat coming? What am I going to do with it when it arrives, etc. Right. But we don't can, and, and I really don't think there's as much of a culture of canning in Europe as there is in the States. So it's always, it was always quite surprising to me, you know, when I first started seeing your canning pictures, just the, the vastness of the scale on which you're, <laughs> you're canning. Well, it's funny because the, a lot of, the the early stages of canning development came from yeah mr napoleon yeah, yeah from <laughs> Europe, his desire definitely. to transport food for his for his soldiers uh it was funny i haven't even done any big canning projects since we moved out here so i i wonder what you would think if you saw the big ones <laughs> i just I, I just wouldn't know what to do i'd have to sit down there were so many vegetables i think i sit down a <laughs> lot but <laughs> well when you put a couple point. families together and, yeah, and you figure you true. know hey if we each want to have a jar a week that's 50 jars each and then you figure mm. out how many pounds go in a jar and you start working backwards you you get end up with a pretty big pile pretty quickly and you got to have a plan to get, get it in, in in through the doors of the storehouse you know in time so yeah um, it's fun I, I enjoy the 
strategy of it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the logistics, the kind of, yeah. I yes, can, logistics. I can resonate with that. So um, as we wrap up, maybe we've talked about a lot. I mean, there's still a load more I, I could talk about, um, but there's nothing Days new worth. there. Let, <laughs> let's <laughs> um, just kind of uh, recap on what we think are kind of easy ways to to start in this world or things that we think are most important in our kitchen tell me what you think would be something rather than taking on everything all in one go something that people can take on if they're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by everything we've covered don't take it all on at once or it's uh, it's gonna be a sad time well i think the the big arms of this are your sourcing Mm. your personal skills and your knowledge of ancestral food preparation. So my suggestion would be, if you're in the States, you can look on eatwild.com or what's the raw milk website? Find raw mm. milk or something like that. But you can start to maybe find one thing sourced by you. Don't try to do it all because that's a great way to have an aneurysm. Ask me how I know. Yeah. But if you just pick one thing, and if you're like me, you moved a 10 times in 10 years and so you have to do this 10 times but it's worth it so pick one thing that you can find maybe for you you just think all right i'm just gonna find some piece of meat local um or i'm gonna find a veggie okay so pick one thing then pick a skill i think learning a skill that um don't have to start with tempering chocolate (laughs) (laughs) but um ferments are so wicked easy so the sauerkraut's a good one to start with um but any of those five that i listed you know the kombucha or water kefir or sauerkraut or kimchi or sourdough bread or uh kefir like milk kefir yogurt those are really easy things or bone broth it's not a ferment but i put that in the list of cheap foods pick one of those skills because I think once you do it, it's not as intimidating or monumental in our mind. Yeah. And then the third would be these ancestral cooking skills. So you're already listening to this podcast. You're obviously doing your due diligence to gather knowledge wherever it's being left. <laughs> uh, find a book that you like. I love Sandra Ellick's cat's book. Um, the art of fermentation or this other book i think it's called wild ferments that's the actual the art of fermentation is not recipes so if you're looking for recipes that's not the one but um wild fermentation or wild ferments i absolutely love that book and you can learn just pick pick one recipe and just make it your skill um of course nourishing traditions is a good one or um, traditional diets or nourishing broth any of those sally fallon morell books is a good one because she puts lots of there's like stacks of skills and then kind of paired with the history of why why mm. you're making that that way. So that would be my my kind of top recs. I think well, the only thing I'd like to add to that from my perspective is that I think it's just important to go with your joy. And so if the thought of sauerkraut kind oh, of just doesn't that. do anything for you, <laughs> but you like the idea of having some kombucha, then go oh. do the kombucha. If you, you don't yes. want to cook stocks, but you love the idea of making yourself a smoothie that's full of probiotics, then mm, think about mm. raw milk and kefir. It's really important, or it has been for me, certainly, in my journey, that I just follow the, the river of kind of joy and curiosity and passion. And that's what's moved me into this kind of snowball place where all these things are, are now part of my life. It started from what do I, what's exciting to me? What's joyful yes. to me? What do I want to yes. eat, you know? And so I that, that's, that. that's what I'd say. <laughs> I agree Just pick the with thing that. that brings you the most you, joy and do that. I don't know about you, but if I don't, if I don't like it or I'm interested, it ain't happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly. I agree. Yes. Is there anything else you want to add before we finish, Andrea? This was beautiful. I I am so grateful to you for um, collecting this uh, topics together. And oh, this was just fabulous. And I can't wait for the next one. Yeah, I'm hoping that that people who are listening have got something from it. You know, this is um, one of our early episodes. And hopefully through the last episode, you've got to know both of us a little bit. And now you know a little bit more about our kitchen and what we do. 
and we're um we're like yeah. a ship we're about to sail off into uncharted waters and bring wow. you hopefully lots more information and have lots more fun in the process yes the dawn treader strikes forth <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks andrea <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Thank you.